there are about 300 to 400,000 homeless gay youth across, uh, across just America. Um, people who have fled their home or been uh, like kicked out, um, oftentimes by uh, religious motivations. Uh, there are a rising number of suicides for uh, gay youth who are um, wrestling with inward shame and other sort of societal factors, trying to figure out how they can relate to God, and how they can relate to society, and what their life can actually look like, um, and unfortunately coming to an, an unfortunate conclusion. We are going to go out into churches, if we haven't already, and we're going to interact with people who um, just last week I was talking with people and asking them what they would want me to take up here. Um, some same-sex couples I knew, and one of them, one of the predominant message was love the Jesus in me. Um, I had I, one man say, um, tell my story that Jesus has saved me, and he has changed my life and transformed me. And um, this is one issue that I just don't think I agree on the traditional stance of biblical theology. So whether you agree with that or not, um, we have a job to interact with people, to lead them to Christ, and figure out how, how at best we can, we can move forward in our churches. So we can't talk about all that today. We can't solve all these problems today. Um, but we can start the conversation um, with people I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing from. And then the school will go on further from here and talk about even, even more in-depth ways the church can move forward. Uh, so without further ado, we are very excited to hear from Matt Jones. He is um, a student at Fuller Theological Seminary, having getting two master's degree in anthropology and theology. He's done uh, mission work in Guatemala and also been working in, in a local church body. Um, so we, we've been able to hear from Dr. Gagnon, and I'm looking forward to everyone to get to introduce to Matt Jones, hear his story, and how he sees the, the church moving forward on this. So everyone, can we give it up for Matt Jones? Awesome. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah, not too bad. Perfect. So uh, this is my first time speaking to a group via Skype uh, in Canada, of, of all places. Um, so I apologize if halfway through I just kind of like stop and freak out about how crazy technology is. Um, and yeah, I just also want to say that I, I've, I've got a lot of people praying for uh, this talk for you guys as a community. Um, and more specifically, I think uh, right now that I would somehow keep the number of like Pokemon references in my talk to a minimum, uh, which is always a, a difficulty as a millennial. Um, but so I'm going to really try to very quickly just tell my story and then um, as much as possible, then also um, give some reflections on how I think the church could best move forward from here. Um, so I have a pr pretty generic testimony, right? I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but I didn't make my faith my own until I was about 16 at a summer camp. Um, I couldn't be more generic if I tried, honestly. Um, and because I started taking my faith seriously then, I decided to enroll in a, a Christian college, which was Wheaton, uh, which is an evangelical school out in Illinois. And it was wonderful. Uh, it was a great experience. But I, I went there with kind of the expectation, with the expectation that I would find 
quickly my friends for life. You know, that was kind of the way my mom described it, how the moment you arrive on campus, you, you're going to experience this wonder of community and, and growth and stuff like that. And um, I honestly felt that that was the case for the first month. Within three days, I discovered amazing friends. Uh, you know, I had all of the the thoughts about like, oh my gosh, like my, my life has changed because in high school, I was an incredibly lonely kid. Even though I was pretty popular, I, you know, was on, you know, I was captain of the varsity tennis team. I had friends. Um, there was definitely the sense of, of isolation and, and, and loneliness that very much defined a lot of my childhood. Um, and I thought that college would fix that. Um, and so needless to say, when I started experiencing these friendships, uh, I thought everything was going to change for the better. One month after I uh, matriculated to Wheaton, all of those friendships fell apart uh, for various reasons. Um, and that basically started me on this three-year downward spiral of depression um, and isolation um, because I, I was quickly confronted by um, just kind of the dissolution of a lot of my dreams and my hopes for what my life might look like. Um, but what that ended up doing, though, was it stripped away a lot of my... Uh, when I was forced to come up against the reality that my life was not happening the way that I, I was expecting it to, that my dreams weren't going to be realized as easily as I thought, that maybe I had been lying to myself in some ways... That really forced me to dig deep and really look at myself and examine like who who I was because it was the 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 reality of the matter is that I was an incredibly conflicted person. Um, I was I knew that that there was something you know like roiling just underneath my skin, but I didn't have words to articulate what it was. Something that just constantly made me feel like I was coming up to the edge of just incredibly dark like chasms and. I felt like I was living a double life, that I was uh, just fake. I think fake is probably the best way to describe it. Um, obviously, you know, the reason that I'm talking at this conference is because it it's because I was gay. And, you know, but at the time, I had no language for that. You know, I wasn't dating guys. I wasn't doing anything like that. I was, you know... It's a common trend among conservative Christians when when they realize that they're attracted to the same sex to be like, oh my gosh, am I a Christian anymore? I was I was the opposite. I was like, well, I know I'm a Christian, so it's like impossible for me to be attracted to guys, um, which turns out not to be true. Um, but you know, we learn. And uh, anyway, so what what the that freshman year forced me to do was to I couldn't run from that anymore. Um, I couldn't lie to myself anymore in a lot of reasons because I was forced to really examine what was causing so much pain in my life. Why was I feeling so isolated? Um, so by the end of my freshman year, I think I finally admitted to myself that I wasn't straight. Um, it happened because I was trying to figure out if this one girl or one woman was interested in me, you know, after like three months of her apparently dropping really major hints as I found out later. Um, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I didn't understand what was happening. I kept asking all these people, like, do you think she's interested in me? I just don't know. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, it's so obvious. And I remember I was sitting at my computer going through all of her Facebook profile pictures and like trying to figure out if I thought she was attractive. And 
And I remember after just going through like a hundred of them, uh, there's just this thought that w- that said, you know, Matt, if you were straight, it wouldn't be this difficult. Um, and I think that really um, helped in, in a very real way, as terrifying as it was. You know those those installation sculptures where from one perspective it looks just like a pile of garbage, but from another perspective it's like Michael Jackson or a penguin or something? Um, that's kind of what it felt like. Like my life and what had made up my life didn't change at all. Rather, the perspective from which I was looking at it changed. And then a lot of things suddenly took shape, made sense, had language. Um, at the time, though, you know, I... I I didn't know really what to do with that. I knew I was still obviously committed to following God. I had, you know, that a deep-seated conviction that it wasn't his will that, you know, people act on homosexual desires. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't sure exactly what there was for me to do. So I spent the next summer just kind of going along, not really doing anything, being lonely, being terrified of people finding out. I was so afraid. Um, because I thought that it would end all of my relationships and all of my friendships, that people would think I was gross or disgusting. Because honestly, I thought I was gross and disgusting because that's what I learned growing up, you know, that there was not much worse than being attracted to people of the same sex. Um, but as it happened, I was a small group leader my sophomore year. I was, you know, in charge of these eight rambunctious freshmen with a, and I had a co-leader. And I remember thinking, you know, if I want these men to be vulnerable and honest with their life stories, then I have to be honest with mine. And that set off, you know, probably the scariest moment of my life then, uh, which was to admit to these people that I was attracted to guys, that I didn't know what to do with that, except, you know, keep pursuing God and, and you know, try to, you know, in a way say no to those very uh, strong and powerful desires. Um, so I came out uh, my sophomore year and I basically blacked out while I was doing it. I was so nervous. Um, and, but they were amazing. Uh, one of the guys actually just started crying and he looked at me and said, you know, Matt, like Satan's so pissed off right now um, because you are no longer hiding and living in the shadows basically. And you've decided to bless us with honesty. And that small group ended up being one of the most amazing experiences of my life, even thus far, like the level of honesty that the other guys brought to it and the commitment that we all showed um, was really profound. And so basically starting with that admission um, began kind of three years of, of growth, of processing through what it means to be a sexual minority, what it means to, you know, to be a gay person in the church who's, who's pursuing celibacy, who's committed to a conservative sexual ethic, um, and yet who also, you know, is increasingly interacting with with people who come from a wildly different understanding of what sexual ethics is or what it means to be a sexual person. Um, so yeah, so that's, so basically, um, I'm going to summarize the next three years. I slowly, I slowly grew up. Um, I started getting new categories, new language. Um, my friendships slowly developed and eased, eased the loneliness and it took a long time. Um, but I'll talk about that more later. Um, and eventually by the time I graduated, I, had helped start um, Wheaton's, like a, like a community group for sexual minorities on Wheaton's campus, um, and then graduated, 
spent time working in South Africa with drug addicts and then in Guatemala in an orphanage. And now I'm a student at Fuller, as, uh, as Nate said. Hopefully we'll, and, and I'm applying for PhD programs down here um, in religion and social sciences. So basically that's a brief overview of kind of what brought me up to the point of starting the journey of understanding my sexuality. And then what I'm going to do now, because I, I don't have much time, um, and somebody's going to have to like wave their hand when I've got maybe like 10 minutes or five minutes left just because I forgot to look at the clock. Um, and now I'm panicking that I'll go over. So um, I'm going to look at basically three primary things that have benefited me um, and, and really helped me grow and helped me find a sense of stability and joy even in um, this traditional sexual ethic in living um, and, and preparing to, to live a life of celibacy for myself um, in the church and in, 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 a, in a society that increasingly thinks that such a commitment is harmful and, and in many cases evil. Um, I also interact a ton with a lot of hurting and anxious youth who send me emails or who I meet in person who have been really wounded by the church. Um, and so a lot of my observations are in part from my own experience, but also a part of their experiences. What has hurt them? What seems to be stopping them from really believing that they could live an abundant life? Um, what, and especially in many cases, what has stopped them from feeling like they can find that abundant life in the church and reasons they've left or reasons they've simply switched to a, uh, you know, what I would consider like a more progressive sexual ethic. The first, the first one that is probably the most important for me to emphasize has simply been the relentless presence of friends and of a community who showed me day-to-day -day love and acceptance and who allowed me to show them day-to-day -day love and acceptance, who kind of rallied around me and and just made it very clear that my life was not one that was doomed to loneliness and isolation. And I say this because I would say maintaining healthy friendships is probably the most prominent concern I see among people like myself. So, you know, I'm involved in a couple like online groups for same-sex attractive people within the church. And then I mentor a couple who or like a, a couple um, young people who are, you know, who, who are same-sex attracted and pretty much across the board. There is this unbelievably intense anxiety around friendship, around developing friendships that are, are good, that are healthy, that actually meet some of those relational needs that we all have. And this was especially true and seems to be especially true even still in colleges. You know, when we have that narrative of, you know, this is where you're going to find amazing friendships that change your life. This is where you'll really realize who you are. You know, this is when you you know, begin forming, uh, you know, a foundation for the rest of your life. You know, there's a lot of those narratives. And so people have a lot of anxiety going into it, looking for those friendships. And yet as, as a sexual minority, there's also all of this fear then of how will they respond when they find out? Will they instantly think that I'm attracted to them? Will they think I'm gross? Will they have any idea what to do? And then in some cases, even after, you know, people find out and even if they respond well, you know, just will they be a good friend? Because honestly, our culture doesn't do friendship particularly well as a whole. You know, we're very isolated and individualistic and we don't understand on like a deep core level um, what it means to be really committed to friendship and, and to communities. 
So for me, uh, in my college experience, there was uh, one guy in particular. He was the the small group co-leader who I came out to, and he was uh, my closest friend for my entire college career. And honestly, no relationship has ever given me as much like anxiety as that one, um, just because he really messed up in a lot of ways on, on the way. He had a lot to learn. I had a lot to learn. We all had a lot to learn. Um, and it was a struggle. Like He wasn't very good at communicating. Uh, he would often just kind of not pick up on instances where I might be really suffering because of something. Um, that somebody around me said, but because I was still generally closeted, I uh, hadn't come out yet. I didn't want to be the one that had to challenge people on homophobic speech. I didn't want to be the one to challenge, you know, ignorant assumptions and stuff like that. And so I would kind of just be sitting there feeling anxious and suffering. And then he wouldn't pick up on that or any of my friends didn't pick up on that. And so there was a lot of learning we all had to do. And and I say this as somebody who also was going to counseling. I had like five mentors in college, five professors who were pouring into my life. And it still took me a really long time to finally feel like stable and solidified in my relationships. Just because the, the furor surrounding this topic of sexuality in the church is so great that just existing is, is difficult sometimes. There's a lot of tension that's constantly kind of being heaped onto me and people like myself. And so, um, you know, friendships and my communities are, are kind of the main source of, of places where I can go and, and try to feel like I'm not being pulled in a million different directions where I can just rest and where I can just be myself. Um, and so it's, it's important for communities, I think, to really communicate that to, to same-sex attractive people and, and for friends to really understand that it's it's that being a friend to a gay person is one of the greatest gifts you could give them just a consistent witnessing presence to the love of god because so often it's hard to believe given the the insanity kind of 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 our of the quote unquote culture war um makes that a little bit more difficult you know it's not like a an instinct that a lot of um same sex same sex attracted people have in the church um, and, and honestly, the difficulty surrounding forming friendships and stuff like that is why I actually encourage people to, um, come out of the closet if possible. Um, I know in some communities there would be very serious negative repercussions for admitting that you're attracted to the same sex. But at the same time, when I was closeted, um, I was like obsessed with, with managing my image with, you know, I, I was dominated by my sexuality. It was the one thing that kind of loomed about me all throughout the day that I was always afraid of somebody finding out about that. I was terrified. Somebody might guess, you know, that this was the case. I was afraid people would leave me. I was afraid what people might think about me. There was, it also allowed that lie to lodge in my head that says, sure, they're my friends now, but if they really knew me, then they would leave. And that, that particular lie causes so much damage. So coming out, you know, to, to my friends and to my wider community, stripped all of that away. And actually, over time, it became less and less of a deal, less and less of a big deal. Like, it was still important, and it still needed to be talked about, like, how should I live and, and stuff like that. But in general, I wasn't obsessed with manage, image management 
um, which meant like things like, you know, vanity or narcissism greatly decreased because I wasn't really thinking about myself anymore. Um, and it also gave a benef benefit to my friends who got to know me on a more personal level um, and who themselves were then urged toward vulnerability and honesty. Um, the second thing that's really radically transformed the way that I understand my vocation has been the opportunity to serve. So for a really long time, you know, my sexuality forced me like into myself, if that makes sense. Like it dominated my thoughts, it dominated how I acted, how I behaved. And I was kind of consumed by, by anxiety about my sexuality, trying to figure out what to do. And it wasn't until I started participating in ministries that I realized that actually my sexuality was not the biggest deal in my life. And in fact, you know, a lot of my experiences that were the, that were because of my, my sexuality actually helped me serve people better. So the isolation I felt and the awkwardness and the sense of distance that being a sexual minority or, you know, any minority, um, causes or that I would experience because of it actually enabled me to be more empathetic um, and sympathetic to, to people who experience that for whatever reason, it made me more committed and, and more aware of the need to show people, um, like persistent, um, like care, affection and service. Um, it made me aware of the, like the hidden battles that a lot of people faced. And, and so I started mentoring kids on my college campus as a senior, um, in college. And then that eventually morphed into just broader acts of service as my, my disposition changed. And as I became more aware that, you know, that service and ministry really are close to the heart of the gospel. So that was why I, I went to South Africa and then Guatemala. And then now I, I work in the inner city of Los Angeles, um, in a poor urban neighborhood, um, just because of, of how important, um, I've discovered ministry to be. And the reason is, is because it showed me what it meant to live an abundant life. And I used to think that an abundant life was not available to people like me because I'd kind of been told that you, you're only really half a person until you get married or you don't really know what life is until you've fallen in love or, you, you know, that there's this huge part of being human that's denied to me simply because I'm not, you know, able to, to fall in love and, you know, with, with the people that I'm naturally attracted to and pursue that end. Um, and that's something that's told in the broader culture uh, and in um, the church, you know, that you're only kind of half a person until you're married. Um, but service made me realize that I could live this abundant life um, in ministry. And so when I was in Guatemala or in South Africa or in this inner city uh, context, like I come alive in a very real way. And now being single no longer seems like like a death, death sentence, you know? Um, so I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip toward the end. Um, the final thing is church response, how, how churches have welcomed me in. I had one church that uh, literally torched an internship of mine simply because I was attracted to guys. Um, they said that that was an evidence of sin in my life, that I was unrepentant, and that I was going to bring condemnation down on the church. Um, the pastor was, uh, you know, had asked me to be the intern knowing full well that this was the case. And then the rest of the pastoral staff, uh, kind of flipped out. Um, that was awful. Uh, comparatively the church I'm at now, um, while still having the same, uh, like ethical convictions about sexuality have instead empowered me to serve. And that has gone the longest way to making me feel like this, uh, 
that being celibate in the church is possible and actually isn't isn't uh, mutually exclusive with an abundant life. Um, and so I feel like I actually have a place in the church, which means I'm not going to go looking for a life outside of the church. And, and, and lastly, like I can't stress enough that the question we should be asking is not simply how must gay people act, but must be how can the church become more like Jesus? When people get caught up in this language of culture war, they become all about us versus them, you know, keep them out, focus on, on them and their sins and the things that we think they're doing rather than, as we should always be doing, saying instead, like, what does it look like to be like Jesus and how can we as a church learn from this? Is there anything that these gay people who are even, who are outside of the church or in the church, is there any truth in what they're saying? Is it possible that we have actually reduced the gospel for them and not actually preached the gospel to them? by simply reducing it to saying you can't have sex? Is there something beyond that that's actually constructive and good? Um, so for instance, often the way this manifests itself is when we talk about pastoral responses, it gets reduced to the pastoral response to gay people is for straight people to tell them not to have sex or for straight people to tell them to repent. Rather than asking, what about, like, how can the straight people in the church community, is there something they can do to actually make the sexual conservative sexual ethic viable and abundant. And so I would say that actually a, a core aspect of the traditional sexual ethic hinges upon whether or not church communities will look at themselves and examine themselves and ask, are we failing to be Christ-like in a lot of ways? And I think in our culture that manifests itself in kind of this hyper-individualistic um, elevation of, of, of marriage as the only context where life-giving relationships can be had. Um, it denigrates kind of the lived experiences of, of gay people in general. It doesn't talk about the various ways that, um, or the things that they have to offer the church. You know, I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who's, you know, celibate within the church. Um, and also, you know, it's, it, it's, I can't, it's hard to explain, and this is kind of my final point, it's hard to explain how frustrating it is to have secular critics go on and on and on about how the traditional sexual ethic is a hypocritical millstone being placed around gay people's necks, you know, that makes their life too difficult, too full of pain. And then to have conservative communities actually prove them right by not being the kind of communities that can actually enable somebody to live out that traditional sexual ethic in a way that actually looks like an abundant life. Um, and I'm watching as so many people fall um, because their communities do not empower them to actually live well. Um, only saying like, no, you can't have that without ever providing anything else that could possibly, you know, enable them to live well. Um, there is too much beauty in the biblical Christian ethic of sexuality, and there's too much dignity in people who are attracted to the same sex, and there's too much love to be found in the person of Jesus Christ for things to remain as they are. Um, and so I think this begins, um, you know, with conversations like this, learning to listen, learning to engage with the actual lived experiences of sexual minorities, and then asking yourself, you know, if, if you're straight, you know, or if you're in a church community, what would it look like for us to change and actually become, you know, a space in which gay people could, could seek Jesus and live out this traditional sexual ethic in a truly life-giving, gospel-centered way? Um, so I think we're going to go into question and answer time now. Um, 
Yeah, so Dr. Gagnon, I think we have a seat up here for you. And Matt, just so you know, um, your face is on like seven different screens. So even if like our backs are towards you, it looks like we're facing you to us. Okay, so just so you know. That okay. is so many screens, you guys. Yeah, Holy yeah. cow. Um, so does anyone have a question for either? It might take me a little while to explain it fully. Um, I actually have a question of opinion about a situation, if that makes sense. Um, in, in the broadest of terms, of course, um, I was in a situation this um, coming out of the summer where I was um, kind of in a mentor slash counseling very um, informally, a, a youth that was having issue with gender identity and homosexual urges. And she was making, I shouldn't, anyway, sorry. Uh, this person was making huge strides in understanding God's love for her and God's plan for her and all of these um, good things. And she was in a small group within this church. And she was starting to have trouble. She would call me and be really upset, saying she was having trouble in her small group. Her small group leader, who was an adult and she was a youth, wasn't understanding or wasn't helping. And then I received a phone call just a, just a, about a month or so ago, her very upset because this small group leader had um, made the choice that it was unhealthy for this youth to be in this small group um, because though the youth was claiming, I am pursuing God, I am no longer identifying in my sexuality, I'm going to identify... Um, as a child of God, all this stuff, the small group leader was saying, you're, you're abusing this, this small group. You're making the other people uncomfortable. Um, and, you, and, and, and what was relayed to me was, was the youth said, but I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not gay. And the small group leader said, but you are. So we're going to have to ask you to leave. And so in, within the church, this small group leader asked this youth person to leave because she was making other people uncomfortable. Now, my reaction to that was not God honoring. And in all honesty, I got very angry. Luckily, I didn't get an opportunity to talk to anyone in this church, which was definitely provision from God. Um, but if, if you had been involved, either of you been involved in this situ situation or scenario, what would you have done? What would you have said to the small group leader and the youth, because in in that position, I was I was saying to the youth, what they did was wrong, but you you need to take the higher road. You need to go to people who understand and say, you're. It's not about their amount of being comfortable. It's it's you being edified by the church. And again, I didn't get a chance to talk to the small group leader, but what would you have done, basically? Uh, we can start with Dr. Gagnon. Well, uh, I wish you could have had that opportunity to express your anger. Maybe it would have been like a cleansing of the temple episode, which could have been helpful for some people. Um, I, it, it, it's hearing, Matt, some of what you said and, uh, and hearing this story, Kay, that you mentioned, it just, I don't know, it, it amazes me. It just amazes me because if they were going to ask this person to leave the group, because it made the rest of the group feel uncomfortable because this person was working through 
desires to do things that God, she knew that God did not want her to do. How does that separate her from everybody else in the group? Since everybody in the group, if they're human, excepting, of course, the human Jesus uh, in his incarnation who is sinless, um, is struggling with sinful desire, sexually and otherwise. I mean, there are a whole host of desires. I mean, it runs the gamut, right? So I don't get that. It seems to me everyone would have to leave the group because they all collectively make each other uncomfortable. So I don't, I, it's, again, to me, that's astounding. So it goes back to a problem in understanding Christian anthropology. Uh, it, it's a failure to recognize the work of healing that is required for each and every Christian in their spiritual life. So you're going to throw somebody out because they need healing, but you need healing. Everybody needs healing. Everybody needs to have a reformed mind. Everyone needs to renew their mind in accordance with the gospel. Nobody is born with the thought that they're going to do nothing but obey God in every aspect of their life. So this is just part of what cruciform existence is like. So I think there would have to be a sort of maybe a gentle way of underscoring the sort of hypocrisy in that approach that a person... Um, I guess also, too, it makes me reflect while I'm thinking about that, which something with regard to what you said, Matt. I wouldn't use the term sexual minorities for a series of reasons. Number one, because the description of minorities applies to benign conditions. When you talk about ethnic minorities, it doesn't primarily have to do with a desire to do something God expressly forbids. So it's a confusing kind of rhetoric. And in the other sense person is not really a minority in the sense that all people struggle with sexual sin. All people struggle with sexual desires to do things that God doesn't want them to do. Well, let me just be more candid about it. I do. I struggle with sexual desires to do things that God doesn't want me to do. When was the last time that happened in my life? Um, today, I think it was, actually. And yesterday, and days before that. So, uh, if we're all sexual minorities, then there are no minorities. Um, so on those two grounds, I would have a problem with the, with the nomenclature. Maybe I'll just stop at that point. I'd like to, really like to hear what you have to say too, Matt. Sure. Um, when I talk about like sexual minorities in that regard, it's mostly in terms of social experience. So for instance, that in that particular case, um, because she was kind of singled out for for that kind of treatment simply because of her experience of a particular kind of sexual um, attraction or, or however you want to say it, like that's a social experience that, that is in many ways typical of people who have same-sex attraction. So I, when I talk about like sexual minorities, I mean, so not necessarily in like a ontological way or something like that, but rather in, in social experience, um, that there's something kind of uniform about the way that these um, that people like myself experience certain kinds of responses simply because of this one particular fact of our lives um, so if I were in that in that situation honestly like that's not new like I've heard tons of stories that are pretty much exactly the same um, and so this is uh, so on the one hand you know you could challenge the 
you know, the, the youth leader, as, as Dr. Gagnon was saying, to realize that in, in a way it's like hypocritical and that we all struggle with things. And um, on the other hand, too, I would ask the question, like, it's possible that like wrestling through her sexuality was not the main thing that she was there for. Like, so for myself, like my main, you know, the main avenues of sanctification that I'm experiencing right now don't have much to do with my sexuality, but rather in other areas of my life, like selfishness or whatever like that. So oftentimes, like when people, when, when, you know, people who are same sex attracted or who are gay or whatever are in youth groups like that or in community groups, um, people often assume that the, the main thing that they're working through is their sexuality when that might not be the case. Um, and so reducing them to that is a problem. Um, but I think you did. I mean, I, I really appreciate that you emphasized to her, like that to the, to the youth, that this wasn't on you, that that was, you know, something that, that wrong, that was wrong. Um, and I think that's important because when stuff like that happens and then everybody is silent, um, and doesn't reaffirm to the youth that, no, that wasn't you, that wasn't your fault. That was, that was an error and a sin on their part. Um, if nobody says that, then it's so easy for the youth to internalize that and think, well, I guess it really was my fault. Um, and, and so this is why it's, I think, very important to be very vocal um, and calling out things like that and hypocrit you know, hypocritical um, singling out of, of people like that student um, because that makes clear to other people who might have experienced something similar that, no, in fact, you do really belong in the church and we want you here. Um, that this is where you're going to grow and thrive and find the best way to truly express yourself as a sexual human being. Um, and so I, I really appreciate that you took the time to talk to her um, in that way because, you know, otherwise, if you hadn't, she might have just assumed that maybe the church isn't where she belongs. Um, and so you showed her that actually, no, it's, it's the church is not perfect. It, it fails. It is flawed. But um, there's this great quote by uh, a theologian, uh, George Hunsinger, that says, you know, like the grace of God or the gospel, you know, uh, often must go forward in spite of the church and always against its failures. Um, and so I think in, in that way, he used you in that moment. And I, I just want to say thanks, um, I guess, um, on that student's behalf, too, for being willing to be there for her. And if I might, I would add that it's not only, it's not just a question that this person is a liability to the group. I mean, a liability to be tolerated by the group. This is actually what the gospel is all about. This is actually an instance of the triumph of the gospel and of the spirit of Jesus Christ in an individual's life. It's a person that should be upheld as a model or as an example for what the Christian life is like. Okay, maybe somebody else doesn't have to struggle with certain desires. Well, it's more noble. There's no particular nobility in, in proclaiming the fact that you don't struggle with desires that you don't have anyway. But if you're actually struggling with certain desires and being obedient in the call of the gospel, despite the fact that God has not removed those desires from you, that's a source of praise and a source of this is where the angels rejoice in heaven right so it's it's not even just enough to say we'll tolerate this but it it is the gospel itself that is being embodied uh still to the i'm going to come back a little bit on the sexual minorities thing a little matt uh, I, I understand you're referring to this as a social uh way of uh, assessing the situation but i wouldn't want to give validation to that social perception with that label in other words, I would say that that is a label which does not do service, good service to the church. 
because it also perpetuates the view that such persons who struggle with same-sex attractions should indeed be treated as something different from everybody else. And I think that's precisely what has to be challenged. So here's where I would approach something like the neither male and female in Galatians 3.28 and apply it here, not in the way in which it's sometimes misapplied, but to say rather that here's a person that's just like everyone else who struggles with sexual desires to do things that God doesn't want us to do. There's no way that they, they shouldn't in any way, shape, or form be socially isolated or set apart as utterly distinctive to everyone else in that respect. So before this becomes a debate, um, let's, let's Not that there's question. anything wrong with a debate, I will say. Oh, yeah, just uh, not the right Nathan. form. That's uh, become a bad word nowadays, but I think that's mm. part of the problem of the church. Any other questions? Got a two-part question. Uh, first, this morning there was a lot of time spent on nature, both created nature and sinful nature. But God's prescriptive creation of male and female seems to go hand in hand with his first imperative command to humanity in the very next verse, Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. Seems to carry forward that same idea and indicates that the command could only be obeyed by male and female working together. So as the first part of the question, how can that truth be spoken in love about the created nature versus the sinful nature and obeying God's command here? And secondly, what do you say to those who claim that an increase, a seemingly increase, of the homosexual population is supposedly nature's response to the problem of over, overpopulation? Because that's one that you hear a lot, that the homosexual community is growing as part of nature's response to overpopulation in the world. I've never actually heard that before. That's really interesting. <laughs> uh, we can start with Matt this time. Uh, Dr. Gagnon, if you want to go first, that'd be fine. <laughs> well, I was hoping you would go first, Matt. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to... So basically, like, how do you communicate basically the one of the fundamental aspects of the traditional sexual ethic and love, that it's, you know, that, that the be fruitful and multiply is referring to a, a very real kind of gender complementarity. Is that kind of what you're saying? Gosh, um, I mean, I mean, it's, it's important, obviously, and, but I'm trying to think how that, how I would go about it. I mean, on one hand, I think it has to take place in a much broader framework just for, of general, you know, the general scope of the biblical text and the story um, and, and the importance of that kind of that gendered complementarity that has in, in Jesus's thought and Paul's thought. Um, but I think there are ways of talking about that without necessarily elevating it to this place of like, you know, that's essential to like everybody's personhood in, in a way that I need to then somehow unite with a woman in order to be a whole person, if that makes sense. Um, so just speaking from a pers like from my perspective, I am all for, you know, talking about the goodness of marriage and, and, you know, the importance of like the procreative openness in marriage and, and stuff like that as very important to just kind of the whole sweep of the gospel message. Um, at the same time, there are ways that people talk about that, that denigrate people who aren't married. Um, and that I think, um, is that, and I think that's detrimental to both single people and married people because it often makes marriage something that it wasn't meant to be as somehow like the complete fulfillment of all of your desires. 
Um, and so that I would be really careful about. Um, and I think that is what a lot of people are also reacting against, um, is kind of this hyperbolic overvalorization of marriage as a response to what is seen as like a cultural denigration of marriage, if that makes sense, rather than talking instead about how marriage is good, how singleness is good, and above all else, how this kind of like mutual and mutually reciprocal community in the church is, is the truest reflection of the gospel. Um, so that's obviously like a very kind of uh, introductory response, but I would just want to, to say like that's something that we, we should be thinking about. Like what are ways, like I don't think that message itself, you know, that about like procreation, marital complementarity is is something that should be avoided, but rather like how are we communicating that and are we in some way devaluing people who aren't married um, because, and are we overvalorizing the romantic experience? Because if we're doing that, it becomes increasingly difficult for all single people uh, within the church and, and often feel like second-class citizens in a way. Yeah, I, I basically agree with that and would add some points about, of course, Jesus spoke about uh, those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, right? And that's not a lesser role. In fact, you can make the case that's the greater role to some extent because not that Jesus is opposed to sexual intimacy in marriage by any means. He, Jesus himself is not an ascetic. He had a reputation for being a glutton. Uh, not that he was, but it's a, that he could all be charged with that indicates that he certainly wasn't an ascetic. Um, but Jesus took a pragmatic approach here with regard to missions and the proclamation of the gospel. And rightly, obviously, not that he needs me to say rightly, but yeah, I, he rightly concluded that uh, a person who is not married uh, can take greater risk with regard to the proclamation of gospel and has greater freedom of, mobi of mobility. So uh, if you don't need to get married, uh, then here's a way in which you can maximize opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And obviously, it's the route he took. So we can hardly denigrate the route that he took, right? So that, that's pretty clear. With regard to procreation, I use procreation not so more, not so much as a, you know, every. It, let me put it this way: If you're dealing with Catholic arguments with regard to complementarity, the procreation argument plays a much more significant role than I would give it in my own understanding of the issue. I see procreation as the, uh, it's just a, uh, a heuristic clue, if you will, as to to the complementarity of male-female relationships. In other words, it's part of the clear package of design that God has intended sex to be between a man and a woman. Uh, but by the same token, when you look at Paul's discussion of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, there's not really much discussion about having children. I mean, there's a lot of place from at that point to promote marriage in light of that, but he doesn't really do so, uh, except in the context of referring if you're married to an unbeliever then uh, it's still okay that the children can be sanctified because as long as you have one believing partner, the relationship is serviceable to God, uh, which is basically the point that he's making. So I see the procreation more as a clue to the design rather than the whole objective for the relationship. And, uh, and with regard to, well, uh, the issue about people who are homosexually oriented, this helps keep the population down. Well, it can also keep the population down by just not having sex. I find that that also works too. Um, and so it really doesn't validate a form of intercourse that Scripture regards as incompatible with the way God has created us in our embodied existence. I see another hand. You uh, hit on a big... 
I, the where it all hits for me, if I was hitting the fan with it, you you, you called yourself, uh, you said you came out as gay, but that you would say celibate. So you're calling yourself a gay Christian, even though you wouldn't say you're acting on um, those desires, those impulses. Um, sure. And then you talked about one church accepting giving you a place to serve, and the other place not giving you a place to serve. And I think even with a friend that um, has had a hard time even in that sense, it comes down to um, there'd be a lot of churches I feel like that would be open to ex- even letting you serve on staff or in roles if you were to say, I'm a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a gay Christian because you're not acting on that, but were to say that you had those desires and temptations, but that's not that. But to classify yourself in that category, it, it almost implies that it allows that. So there's this, I think, that right where you said that, to call yourself a gay Christian and to openly say that even though you're not acting on it, where do you serve in the church and what does that look like is like the, the crux of ministry question. And what role do you serve in as a lead pastor and below? And owning that even though you're not necessarily acting on those desires, but you're owning that identity. Um, and so that's, I would love for you guys to speak to that because I think that's right where this whole, like where a lot of people honestly are asking the question as pastors and people in the church as well. What does this look like? Sure. Actually, so at the first church where things got torched, basically, I, I never actually said that I was gay to the pastoral staff. Um, it, was, it was exclusively because of the ongoing, um, my ongoing experience of same-sex attractions um, that they kind of like, you know, cut me out from the internship. Um, because I'm, I'm aware of that. Like, I'm aware that that language is a very hot-button topic. Um, I generally try to kind of accommodate audiences that I'm speaking to or, or communities I'm in just because I think clarity is kind of the most important part um, and in terms of like just communicating well. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is this is something that could go around in circles for a really, really long time. And I acknowledge that there's deep disagreement um, on this. Um, and a lot of it comes down to what do I mean when I say the word gay? And so there's often, um, for people who have more problems with it, it has generally a, a more like, like I'm talking about a desire for gay sex specifically, um, that that is understood by gay. Um, and then generally though, in like my generation, the word gay just means that somebody who's attracted to the same sex, um, and doesn't necessarily have like the sexual component in it any more than say saying I'm straight would, um, and so, again, it's more about just, and again, like I place quite a bit more credence into the social experience, so I don't want to get back into that. Um, so, but again, I would say like for me, gay is simply uh, an easy, clear word in certain contexts, in other contexts, obviously it's not clear, um, that denotes just a certain way that I've interacted with the world and that the world has interacted with me. Um, and so I get that. And so I think what the, the pastoral implication of this is simply that you just have to really get to know the person. Um, what do you like, you know, asking them, what do you mean by that word? If they say that word at all, um, get a, get a sense for the way that they actually see their lives, um, progressing, how they understand their sexual ethic to be a part of their ministry and their witness, how they understand the gospel and, you know, how are they actually going about, you know, resisting temptation and clinging to the cross um, I think those are actually considerably more important than um, 
like which word they did or did not use or or better yet rather that because all language is kind of provisional at this moment like we don't have a, a super clear cut word that accurately communicates everything we want to communicate you know about saying like that I'm a, that I have a traditional sexual ethic as a person who's still attracted to people of the same sex and who is planning on living a life of celibacy like you know we don't we don't have that word yet so if you make if you come up with that word please like i will pay you you know that would be awesome because it's really annoying you know having to play the language game um and so what i would say is what what it requires is just a willingness to sit with with that person and enter into conversation and ask those difficult questions um and then also to to believe them uh i think that's important too in, in a lot of ways you know like we go back to the the girl who was kicked out of the group her her small group leader just didn't believe her you know, and told her instead how she was actually interacting with her sexuality. Um, and I think, sure, that might open you up for some risks in some regard, but, like, that's, you, at some point, you just have to believe somebody um, from one way or the other. Um, and so the people at my old church, they wouldn't, even though I never said gay even, they, they would not believe that I would not, you know, try sleeping with one of the high school boys, basically. Uh, they accused me of pedophilia. Um, and, and just because of, of, you know, a refusal to kind of like listen to what I was actually saying. Um, does that even remotely answer what you were saying? Yes. Yes. It, it definitely starts to, um, I guess would you, would, so would you say you would say churches as a whole should be okay for you to be on staff or in a volunteer role, but be able to call yourself as a gay Christian just even knowing that you, what you're saying, social standards for the most part would accept that, but then there would be another imputed meaning behind that. So that a lot of pastors and churches would have a hard time leaving, some, like empowering someone's staff to be in that role, owning that term as a part of their identity. Yeah, and I th again, I think it actually it depends on the church you're in. Um, it depends on the context. The church that I go to now is an inner city urban church, um, so it doesn't really have a lot of the, the meaning behind it, you know? And I'm pretty um, out at that church, um, and that's been fine. Um, and another reason why I, I kind of actually am generally for people, you know, at least being open to the possibility of saying, like, this person's gay but still following God um, and, and still, like, pursuing celibacy and that this is possible is because whether or not the church wants this to be the case, when, um, like, people in the congregation who are same-sex attracted— like when, when often the church will say something kind of disparaging about gay people, like, you know, who are out of the church or whatever, they'll take it to mean themselves. Um, and I know this is true for myself, even as I didn't identify as gay, you know, or describe myself as gay is, I think, a better way of saying it. I still took all of the mean things that Christians said about gay people and understood that to be directed to myself. And that caused a ton of anxiety, kept me hidden in darkness for a long time, made me lie to myself and to others a lot because I kind of like subconsciously got that message. Um, and so when I started seeing people who were okay in some way with, with talking about their experience as, as being gay and yet still pursuing celibacy, suddenly I started understanding, you know, that I could actually pursue a similar life of holiness. Um, and it, it removed a lot of the actual like barriers between me and the gospel because, because I was, I, I realized that, what those Christians had said about gay people, um, 
like that I, that I didn't have to take those upon myself, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, my, I, I didn't hear your question is primarily doing with the use of the term gay, but I think that's helpful to address that. Uh, I think the initial issue you're talking about is making the distinction between the mere experience of desires to do what God expressly forbids and the deliberate um, conscious intention to entertain those desires in one's thought life and or behavior. And how, I guess, again, it's another point of amazement for me. Maybe I've been at this subject too long, but the, note, the, the fact that Christians cannot make that, that there could be Christians who cannot make that distinction, especially given their own self-experience, of desires that they shouldn't be engaging in. Again, to me, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my imagination around that because it is so intuitively obvious, right? That simply because you experience a desire that you did not ask to experience does not mean that you have sinned. That's just, to me, that's Christianity 101. I mean, there's just, it's so basic a point that if that's not clear in the church, then all around the country, pastors should be speaking about that next week and clarifying that most obvious of points, which should resonate with every individual's experience. Um, so I think that can be clarified fairly quickly. I think with regard to the use of the terminology gay, I have continued to have a problem with that. Now, Matt and I, of course, you can see of different generations. Uh, I, I try to look young. Sometimes people think I look young when I'm on a plane, but really I am 56, so I'm getting up there, I guess, not far from retirement age. Now I'm looking ahead to it in nine years. And uh, it may be a little bit generational thing, but I think there's also some good reasons for it. And I think actually, Matt, some of your explanation confirms the point that I would make, which is namely the terminology is confusing. Okay, and so when you use it and then you complain that people have misunderstood it, well, that's because the terminology itself is inherently confusing. In the cultural use of it, gay primarily means an affirming self-identity constructed around same-sex attractions. So if you want to say, I am going to use the term gay, but I don't mean it in that sense, and I hope you get what I'm meaning. Of course, having heard you, your whole lead up to this and telling your story, it's clear that when you say gay and apply it to yourself, you do not mean an affirming self-identity crystallized around same-sex attractions. But you can't always tell that story to everybody. And so they just hear, this person identifies as a gay Christian. You know, how does that differentiate you from Justin Lee of the Gay Christian Network? Justin Lee, uh, he's not yet uh, having sex with a man, apparently, and in a sexual relationship with a man. But he still says he's looking for Mr. Right. So he's in, he's in the market shopping for it. Uh, and it's precisely that confusion that is the problem. Because the biggest demarcation between you and him is precisely over your respective views about same-sex attractions. And in your view, you believe that Scripture has a, uh, a very clear witness about what is appropriate and not appropriate. And Justin Lee has a totally different view about that issue. And he wants to obscure that difference. That's the whole point. That's the raison, raison d'etre of the group, is to include, as gay Christians, in the same umbrella organization, both those that affirm same-sex intercourse and those who do not. But that's to treat that behavior as an adiaphora, 
as a matter of indifference. That's entirely in line with his program. Because if he can get the church to say that same-sex intercourse is adiaphora at, at worst, at best we should, we should be avidly supporting it, then he's won in the church. So the church has to make clear that is a demarcation that we are not going to see obscured because that's the difference between life and death. So for that reason, I think uh, it's, I, I get the whole shorthand thing, but it's, it creates more problems than I think it's worth. It's better to talk about same-sex attraction. Maybe we, can, maybe we can say SESA or something from same-sex attraction, I don't know. Come up with something, but that to me is very unhelpful terminology. Incidentally, there was recently a blog post about that by Matt Walsh, who is of your generation. And he says he does not call himself a gay Christian. Matt, Matt Moore. Matt Moore. Matt, Matt Moore, Moore. Pardon me. I'm thinking of somebody else. Pardon me. Matt Moore is the person. I knew it was a Matt. Another yeah. Matt there. There's so many of us. It's awful. Matts are everywhere. I mean, uh, and, and uh, but the point being, same generation. And he sees these problems. And for that reason, will not refer to himself as that. And I think that that is theologically correct to do. Uh, we don't want to make our, our identity... Uh, we don't want to put on par with our Christian identity any array of attractions that we have to do what God expressly forbids. I, I could call myself easily a polyamorous Christian, okay, because I experience polyamorous desires on a regular basis. So does this other small subgroup known as men, most men, largest number of men. And, uh, but that, that would be, to me, would be wrong because it would put on a par with my Christian identity an array of attractions that does not honor God if I fulfill them. So they don't belong in the same phrase, in my opinion. That doesn't mean I'm not polyamorous attracted. I am. I do experience, I don't experience high psychic discomfort over being attracted to more than one gorgeous woman concurrently. Okay, there's my confession. Men, you would either have to agree or you're liars. Those are your two options. Um, on, or if you're same-sex attracted, you're polyamorous in that attraction as a man with regard to other men. Uh, it's, not, it's not a healthy identifying mark. It constructs, even if you deny that you're constructing an identity around it, the very use of it already begins to construct the identity around it, not to mention the confusion. So that's my problem with it. So yeah, really quickly, um, this is one of the main kind of, like I said, hot button topics. Um, and there are a lot, I mean, so all of the, you know, points that you just brought up are obviously, and none of the points I brought up are new. Um, and I think we're both aware of all of those. Um, so I would, so I would point people maybe toward the blog spiritualfriendship.org, um, just because there's been a lot of work done on language there. Because this, it's not worth getting into a long, protracted conversation about it in this particular context. Um, but I think a lot of the writers there more articulately kind of explain where. Like the the I think the 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 main differences between how Dr. Gagnon and, and I and quite a few other people understand that line between identity versus communication versus clarity. And actually, I think there are quite a few problems with the terminology "same-sex attracted" to refer to people like myself um, that are also dangerous pastorally and in terms of identity. Um, so it's not really uh, again like it's a lot, um, but there's a lot out there, um, and I'd recommend just like do research, look through it, and then ultimately um, just keep listening and, and provide grace because really we aren't very good at talking about this still. Um, and, and we need to learn kind of how to continue to have the conversation 
even while acknowledging that we're going to be maybe saying some slightly different things uh, with different words. Um, but once you get to know people better, you can kind of see where they're coming from, and that enables better conversation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Matt. I've read those blogs. Those are really helpful discussion. I think we have uh, another hand over here. Just thinking, Dr. Gagnon, that you pr prior to the the men's movement in the in the evangelical church, you probably wouldn't have gotten away with those kind of comments, but the men's movement has brought to light, you know, over the last 25 years, uh, the, the reality of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me, you know, the next frontier for, I'm a local church pastor, is, is how to, in the same way, bring light to same-sex attraction and, uh, you know, to make some spiritual heroes of guys like this. Uh, you talked about, you know, you, uh, they just didn't, they just didn't believe her friend. We need some guys that we can say, we believe this man and, you know, put, put our seal of, of approval on them as, uh, you know, a godly man who struggles with that issue and is still worthy of leadership. That's the next frontier, I think. Uh, even though there's an inherent fear in going down that route of drawing attention to the issue and creating a, a, an avalanche worse than it already is, you know. But it seems like that, you know, that cat's out of the bag, and here's where we are. And uh, so th I just want to say thank you for both of you for the way you've, uh, you, it's been helpful to me. I've missed most of all of today but this, but this has been a great. Any other questions? Yeah. So, um, I understand that it's very important to um, reach out to the uh, homosexual community or whatever term you would like to use um, to bring them into church because obviously uh, everybody who sins has fallen short of the glory of God and they all need to come into church. Um, we all know that. But how can we balance our resources and our effectiveness to um, properly bring people in, but in bringing them in, bring them into a place that is safe for them. Because you can bring in a friend who is homosexual to a church, um, and they may be shunned by some of the church members. Um, because, I mean, especially like, I'll just use a man for example. Um, my brother-in-law is incredibly homophobic to the point where he becomes violent. And um, that's obviously not a healthy place for me to bring a homosexual friend to. And um, there may be people like that in the church, um, whether they're younger and they're afraid of that, or if they're older and they're afraid of that as well. So what would be an effective way as a future pastor for me to minister to my church to make this a safe place where we can bring in all sinners of all kinds to get to know the love of Jesus in an effective way? think hook them all up to a lie detector and uh, evaluate the number of sins that they have in their life. That should remedy the situation immediately. That's what I would have done with before the men's movement thing. I would have put you all in lie detectors, given you truth serum and put you under hypnosis. And uh, then it would have been clear you all have the same problem I do. Uh, so uh, I think that's just teaching about the general nature of sin, teaching generally about sexual purity issues, not just restricted to the issue of homosexual practice but teaching regularly about sexual purity issues with regard to problems with fornication, problems with 
adultery, problems with promiscuity, and on and on down the line it goes. And then I think that one can begin to resolve that problem. You know, I, I'm thinking one of the churches that uh, my wife and I attended in Pittsburgh a number of years ago, it's a small little church. In, I think the median age of the parishioner population was probably 60, 65. At that time, we were a young couple with children, and uh, so we sort of stood out a little bit, but other couples were then brought in. There was a guy who uh, began attending the church, same-sex attracted, uh, was living with another man in what he regarded as a marriage. Uh, here's the older generation, but they treated him with love. He was not allowed to become a member because he was currently engaged in a form of active sexual immorality, which, in my opinion, rightly precludes anybody of any sort from becoming a member. If at that point they want to become a member, they're doing that. I mean, that's part of the abstain from porneia element in the apostolic decree. But he was loved, loved enough that he came every week until seven or eight years later he died of AIDS. And, uh, and it didn't change the theology of the church. The church continued to preach about the importance of sexual impurity, including a male-female requirement. Uh, and yet he knew that. Uh, he knew that in my discussions with him. We would go out frequently and eat. He obviously knew what my view was on the issue. But it was clear to him, I think, from everybody in the church, that the concerns that we had grew out of our love for him. In other words, the desire was to for all of us together to be recovered for the kingdom. And he understood that, that that was binding on all of us, uh, not just him. And he understood, although we had a different view than he did on this question of same-sex intercourse, that we nonetheless were reaching out to him in love. So I just don't think it's that hard. If you can do that with a church median age of 60, whom you presume is not as well informed about these issues as the current generation, then I think there's hope for the church generally. I also don't particularly think homophobia is the best description involved here. Uh, I think that's another case of a misnomer that we need to largely get rid of. Um, people could talk, what is incest phobia? I never heard the term used. You know why I never hear the term used? Because one should rightly experience a certain amount of revulsion for incest, right? That's a natural, God-given reaction to a form of behavior which, in its essence, demeans the participants because there's too much kinship identity on the part of the persons engaged in the behavior, even if it's an adult consensual union, okay? But you'll never hear incest phobia mentioned because it's not phobic to have an aversion to the experience of incest that you see in another. The problem with Corinth wasn't incest phobia. Of course, their problem was that they tolerated the behavior in question and, and prided themselves in their ability to do it. The problem uh, really would come down to love, lack of love. And when it comes down to the question of love, the odd thing is, is that Paul, despite the recommendations he makes in 1 Corinthians 5, is the only one that is truly loving this man. And when you, so it doesn't fit the, the template of phobia. Homosexual practice is on the same order in Scripture. Not a question, I'm not, not a question of being homophobic. A person should rightly experience an inner sense that there's something problematic about having intercourse with members of the same sex. What they should not be doing is hating persons who engage in the behavior. 
Again, there's this misunderstanding in the church that has to be corrected that we have to lower the level of an offense in order to love the person engaged in the behavior. That is absolutely ungodly ethical thinking. Jesus more aggressively reached out in love to the biggest violators of the very demands that he was making in ethics. He didn't moderate the exploitation of the tax collectors to say it wasn't that bad that they ripped off people who are on the margins of life, fellow Jews who now might starve because of their greedy, ungodly behavior. He didn't moderate that at all. Was he, was he, what kind of phobia would that be? There's no phobia there involved. It's a simple recognition that this is egregious sin, and yet he reached out in love to those who were committing it. That's the model. Why would we want to appropriate any other model? The sinful woman who comes to Jesus, who washes her feet with her tears and wipes his feet with her hair. What does Jesus have to say about her in relation to the Pharisee? He doesn't say, oh, you Pharisee, you've sinned as much as she has. There's no difference between the two of you. That isn't what he says. Instead, he tells a parable about the one whose debt was greater and forgiven loves more. That's not, a, that's, not an, that's not a statement which indicates that all sin is equal in all respects. On the contrary, the presupposition of the remark is that sin is not all equal. Some sins are more severe than other sins by their nature. And the debt forgiven will be greater. But the person forgiven of the greater debt loves more. So it all equalizes in the wash anyway at the end. Right? It's like, an H, it's like saying because you have an HMO or Obamacare, or whatever else we want to appeal to, that all health conditions are equally severe or equally unsevere, however, whatever term you want to use here. They're not. It covers all health issues. That's true. In that sense, all health issues are equal. You're going to be fully covered on all health issues. But that doesn't mean all health issues are equal. They're not. Same thing with sin. God's forgiveness covers all sin. That doesn't mean all sin is equal in all respects. So the phobia issue has really nothing to do with it. It's a question of hate. It's a question of refusing to love. Even in their misunderstanding about what they're talking about, they're not manifesting love. So I would rather go to the nomenclature we have in Scripture than develop a new range of nomenclature that actually creates more problems than it helps. Um, in terms of pastoral responses to that church. I mean, I, I thought uh, Dr. Gagnon's earlier comments were, were helpful in that if your church is being the church, is serving the poor, is, you know, living in, in good life-giving community with itself, um, is preaching well, uh, is, you know, celebrating the, like, the sacraments and, and all of that stuff, um, like, people will be attracted to that because they'll see the gospel being proclaimed um, in a really powerful way. Um, I think another, uh, part to making them feel safe is of course, like being willing to address, you know, the sins of hatred from the pulpit. Um, and perhaps whenever topics of sexuality come up, address that, um, being aware that people in the audience will be like, if, if they're like your brother-in-law, I think you were saying, if they're like that, that they'll be experiencing these like kind of intense and incredibly sinful, like, uh, revulsion and, and, and hatred toward, toward gay people. Um, that can't, like, the church would be very, like, actively fighting against those kinds of attitudes. Um, unsurprisingly, I do think homophobia is a very real thing. Uh, 
and is is have experienced uh, that. And I think the fact that so many, I mean, it is hatred, but it's hatred specifically because somebody has uh, is attracted to the same sex, and that's an irrational hatred, um, not simply just a feeling of like ickiness about you know what may or may not be happening in their bedroom. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily helpful to just get rid of that language because it means so much in our culture um, and is the lived experience of quite a few people. And so it might sound like you're erasing the pain that they've experienced down to people who have been killed. Um, and I think of especially maybe contexts like Uganda, you know, where there's lynch mobs going after gay people. Um, that's homophobia. It's not just, you know, it's hatred. But it's also this irrational fear, like witch hunt mentality, specifically because of perceived differences. Um, so I wouldn't completely get rid of that just again because of the effect that might have on people listening uh, who might extrapolate that to mean that the church does not believe that gay people have been in very real ways like harmed um, by irrational fear um, because that is patently true. Um, but yeah, like like Dr. Gagnon said, like a huge part of it is just a hatred problem, uh, or uh, that exists in quite a few people and is endemic to the human condition, um, and and is addressed, I think, just by creating church atmospheres that doesn't allow that to to thrive, um, or even exist without having serious consequences as a very real, uh, like threat to the gospel. I think. Um, anyway, so yeah, so that's. Pastoral response, there's a lot, um, but it would be like taking taking that hatred seriously as something that needs to be directly challenged, because I think silence and, and a kind of apathy toward challenging those attitudes um, says more to the, you know, to the person in your church, the gay person in your church, um, than we might think, so... If I, if I thought analogically, if I related this to, for person, actually, could I just ask a practical question here? Which way are you looking at us? Because I've got all these screens. I have no idea which way is my uh, back, is my face right facing yeah. you. This way? Yes. I'm, I'm now facing you here. So, okay. Yes. That's helpful for me to know. Because I, like so like I don't know if I'm turning my back to you this way or this way, but I, this is helpful. If, if, there was, if there was violence afflicted on a person because they were having sex with their mother, we wouldn't call that incest phobia. Sure, because there's not a long... No, it wouldn't because we would recognize there is, a, there is a, a just and natural revulsion to incest. Right, but it's beyond that. And also, it's more than that because it's also in many cases systematized and, and very deeply embedded in entire cultural systems. Yeah, incest is rightly stigmatized. That's not a bad thing. No, it's in terms right of like that's actual expressed hatred and violence against... The hatred and violence, that's my point. It's the hatred and violence. When you, again, here's the confusing terminology, like the gay issue. When you say homophobia, you may mean one thing by that. And I understand what you mean by that. Okay, so it's a question of semantics a little bit uh, with respect to your use of the terminology. But generally speaking, in the culture today, in Canada, in the United States, when you say homophobia, you mean anybody who thinks that homosexual practice is wrong. Anyone who denies so-called equal marriage. All that, that, that's what is meant by homophobia. So it's, again, a confusing term that lumps together what is appropriate and right with what is not. So I think, again, so the issue is the really case, one of hatred. Uh, pet pedophobia, would you use that term? 
let's say a man has, even in the prison systems, my wife worked for a decade in maximum security prisons in Massachusetts, and she made quite clear that there is a hierarchy of sin in the prisons, by the way. They don't think everything is equal. If you go to prison for having sexually abused a child, you will get beaten up and possibly killed. You have to have special protection in most of those cases. Now, what is the problem there? Is the problem there pedophobia? I don't think anyone would use that expression because they know there is something naturally problematic and revolting about having sex with a child. They don't use that expression. It doesn't fit. It confuses the whole case. To say the problem is pedophobia means there's some problem with having a revulsion to a man having sex with a child. And there is no problem with that revulsion. So they just talk about violence and hate and don't tolerate that. So I think there's another analogy to that. I'm not saying in saying that that homosexual practice is equal to pedophilia because I think pedophilia is worse as bestiality is worse. But it's on the trajectory of things that would include incest and other things in which there is a natural and right revulsion to the behavior that when you say pedophilia, uh, when you use the word phobic uh, as, a, as a suffix to it, it confuses that whole point. And it basically holds all Christians accountable for any opposition to homosexual practice as being homophobic. It feeds in to the larger cultural mantra that leads to the persecution of the church. So for that reason, I think that's another one that has to go. Replace it with hate, that's, that's a good biblical term. You're not supposed to hate your enemy, right? Uh, that's right into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that would be used for economic exploiters. What would we say? You have a exploitation phobia? I mean, we would never use that terminology because exploitation is wrong. Exploitation of the poor, there should be a natural revulsion for that activity. So we would never connect phobia with any activity over which a natural revulsion is correct. In my opinion, so many of the issues over which we debate on this have to do with the fact of failure to properly use analogical reasoning to compare it to other things and ask whether or not it would be suitable under those circumstances. One other remark I have to make about the safe thing, because this is a concern of mine. It's not safe to be in the church. The day the church becomes safe, that's a problem for the church, okay? Because all people need to be held accountable to dying to self, being crucified with Christ, and living for God. That's not safe. Now, I understand the point which you were using it using safe with regard to violence issues and so forth. And in that sense, of course, the church has to be safe. But we don't want to get into this larger rubric, which I frequently heard specifically with regard to this issue, that we need to make it safe for persons who are same-sex attracted. Normally what that's come to mean, even by people like Alan Chambers, formerly of Exodus, means that, and it's certainly the case with, uh, what is the guy, the graduate from Moody, who does lots of stuff on this issue, um, blanking on his name right now, a uh, graduate of Moody, but he's sort of re renounced everything he got from Moody. Uh, anyway, uh, it's typically used to mean, in the church, leave that between God and the person. And don't you say anything about it. If it's wrong, it's just between God and the person. Okay? And, and that, you know, there wasn't a safe posture taken towards the incestuous man at Corinth by Paul. That is not safe. Paul was more interested in something critical, something more vital than being safe, and that is recovering him for the kingdom by any means necessary. Dr. Gagnon, yep. um, I can see you're really passionate about these, these questions. I'm assuming since you're so passionate, 
that be on your website? Questions about like your discussion about homophobia, gay. Okay, so that's Rob Gagnon, robgagnon.net. Why don't we leave uh, uh, like time afterwards so people can, can research that on their own? And I think we have another question here. Um, it's actually not a question. Um, and I hope you'll forgive me, um, everyone, for doing this. <laughs> um, with respect to both of you, um, obviously I don't know either of you very well, and with the understanding that I am simply a student and not an expert on this topic, um, I just really feel like I need to make a comment that I think the perspectives that both of you are taking are understandable, but there is a different perspective that I think we all could look at that there is a separation between sin in a person's heart and a person. And that's the problem that I think both of you are coming against with this terminology of the terminology of identifying as gay or identifying as homophobic is you're making that sin the person and that sin the title, the sin of hatefulness, the title of the person or the sin of homosexual urges, the title of the person, when they're not. Personality and persuasion are different. If a person has a persuasion towards being hateful or being angry, that's their persuasion, not their personhood. And if a person has a persuasion towards unnatural urges, that's their persuasion, not their personhood. And I think that's what you're both coming up against is you're, you're fighting the same point without realizing it, uh, is that when someone has an overemphasized aversion to a sin in a person's life, they confuse that sin with hating the person, but that is derived out of a sin in their own heart, and that's a sin of being hateful towards someone. And if someone has the sin of being attracted to a, a different sex, that's their persuasion and that's separate from their personhood, but it can get confused when they, use, when they identify in that and it's separating yourself. And I think it's important in all areas of sin to say to the person that you are not defined by what your sinful like nature is telling you to do. You're defined as a child of God and a new creation and dead to your sin. And I, th I think personally that it's important to address that you shouldn't title someone by what sin they're struggling with and you shouldn't title yourself by what sin you're struggling with. But that to recognize that you can be dead to that sin and to recognize that that people need to lift people up to, to separate themselves from their sin. Because if you, if you stay in the title of what your sin is, you're staying attached to that sin. And so I just think, I, I really just felt as I was sitting here that it needed to be said that there needs to be a separation from sin in, on either side. That yes, people are violent towards people who have the urges of same-sex attraction. And that's given the title of homophobia, and I think wrongly because that's giving the person the title of the sin. And I think saying someone is gay or lesbian is 
also difficult because that leaves them identified in that sin. When really, when you, especially when you become a Christian, you become a new creation in Christ and you're no longer identified. You're not identified by if you are a hateful person or if you have struggles with your sexuality. Your sexuality is different from your personality. And your, your, the, the attitude of your heart is different from your personality. And I think that's very important to note that we are separate from our sins because we have died to our sins in Christ. And that's what God wants for, for everyone on this planet is to die to their sins and be separate from them. Sorry. <laughs> I agree with that 100%. Um, we're getting down to the finish. So perhaps uh, if I can ask one more question for both of you, maybe like three-minute cap. Um, how would you guys relate to? <laughs> That's for me. Well, it's okay. It's just, it's yeah. my personal sin. How would you guys? Um, how do you guys in your own personal lives uh, relate effectively to um, people who would claim both the title of of Christian and are in like a same sex union or same sex marriage? You first. Well, I'm I'm still not getting the question entirely. Oh, sorry. Um, how do you guys relate in your, your own personal life to, um, to people or couples who would, um, in their own life, hold both the title of Christian and um, be in a same-sex marriage? Well, if they, if they do both, knowing that I have three minutes here, um, if they do both, then one of two possibilities exists. Either, number one, they're not genuine Christians, or number two, they are genuine Christians, but they're at risk of being excluded from God's kingdom. Those are the two options. Because those are the exact same two options that Paul reflects on the incestuous man, which is our closest analog in Scripture to an issue of severe sin in a community of the first century that an apostle deals with. And in there, Paul talks about the incestuous man as the one who calls himself a brother, there isn't anywhere else in all the rest of his letters he uses nomenclature like that. That hedges the bet. He's not exactly sure whether he is a genuine brother or not. He can hardly believe he could be a genuine brother and be engaged in the behavior he's currently engaged in. But he doesn't come down finally and say he's not a Christian because he goes on to give an example in the second half of chapter 6 of a genuine Christian who is joined to Christ with one spirit, but nonetheless is joining himself to a prostitute in an immoral sexual union. So that analogy would suggest that he does think probably this is a genuine Christian, but is at high risk of being excluded from the kingdom. Fortunately, I'm talking in a Wesleyan context where you think it is possible for a person to lose their salvation. If I were talking in a Presbyterian context, my own denomination, they would say you just made up a hypothetical situation that could never occur. Well, I disagree with the theology of my own denomination at that point. So maybe I do have a place in the Wesleyan circle. So I think one or the other is possible, and that determines the outreach to the individual, which is one of recovering them for the kingdom of God. Matt. Yeah, so in, th in three minutes. Uh, I think one of the, the more important things to ask is, like, you know, how or, like, in what context would this particular person be more open to hearing you speak about the gospel or about your own understanding of, like, sexual ethics and stuff like that? And I think so often uh, Christians think that... Uh, that they can that that somehow truth uh, can be received um, apart from like meaningful relationships where the person is actually open to hearing truth in a substantive and possibly transformative way. Um, so I, I think we can't uh, understate how important it is to actually have like meaningful uh, personal relationships or friendships with with these people who you know who hold these views that we might find problematic. 
Um, because one of the, the biggest problems I see is Christians trying to, you know, uh, communicate these very, what could be very troubling and, and perceived as very like, you know, you know, hateful or hurtful views without any kind of relationship that would make it seem as if, or that would communicate that it isn't actually just kind of a, a hurtful, uh, you know, that they're just kind of slinging around their opinions. Um, so for myself, I have quite a few uh, friendships with people who are in, you know, like uh, same-sex unions or whatever, and they know where I stand. And But because of our friendship and our relationship, like we're able to have these difficult conversations without it being devolved in, into like a perception of like them thinking I hate them or, you know, that I'm attacking them, you know, or me thinking they're devaluing my opinion. Um relationships is what makes these these conversations viable um, and actually productive. And I think so often the church has responded to the very like human and pain-filled stories of a lot of gay people simply by kind of like lobbing grenades of truth on them and considering that love and a, and a gospel response. And when that's simply not the case, and often the gospel cannot be heard at, like as the gospel unless it's accompanied by an actual meaningful sustained relationship with the person that's built in a mutual appreciation of, of, of each other and like a, a deep care for them um, that's been demonstrated over time in multiple other contexts that have nothing to do with sexuality. Um, and I think the church will just be a better, better community for that kind of, kind of um, you know, a, a community, community stance. Um, and just in general, like we'll all learn more from that. Um, and, and might actually see more constructive dialogue start happening and fewer generalizations, fewer strum in, um, and, and fewer, you know, casualties, I guess. Matt, thanks for your time.